All right, joining us now on the program for the first time is David Watts Barton. He's been involved in the Sacramento music and cultural scene for more than 30 years as a writer, performer, and a fan. Much of his career was spent at the Sacramento Bee, where he created the pop music beat. He's written for Sacramento, Sacktown, and other magazines, and recently became a California correspondent for Bloomberg News in New York. David is also a substitute host for Cakes Jay-Z's talk show, Insight, something that we have in common, and I want to say he does a great job. And I'm pleased to be able to say, uh, David Watts-Barton, welcome to uh, Radio Parallax. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, you know... uh, You've been following the story of this Beatles uh, uh, reissuance, and uh, I, I don't know that much about it. I know it was issued on, on the 9th, 9909, not by accident. What's this all about? Well, what they did, uh, since 1987, they, they put the Beatles albums out uh, on CD for the first time. And a lot of people were, and it was a little bit late on CD, as everything that the Beatles do, ironically, is a little bit late on the, the technological catch-up um, which is funny considering how far ahead of things they were originally. But they put things out on CD, and a lot of people weren't very happy with the uh, the remastering, because when you transfer from one format to another, you have to remaster or sort of recreate the overall sound, not the mixing of the various tracks, but the overall sound of the tracks when they're done. And Because uh, every format is different. Early on in CDs, they just transferred things directly over without remastering them, and they sounded really bad. So after the first couple of years of CDs, which was like 1984, 85, they started switching back over and remastering things for CDs. <clears throat> and the technology since 1987 has improved you know, considerably. So they're able, to, uh, they're able to remaster things to sound a lot better than they did back when they originally did the CDs, uh, the original Beatles CDs, which after all was 22 years ago now. That's what this was all about. They remastered them all in stereo, and they also went back and they remastered them all in um, mono, uh, except for, uh, I think, Let It Be and Abbey Road and um, one other album that I can't think of, a, a later album, um, because those never came out originally in mono. So what they did was uh, Apple released a box set of all the stereo remixes, I think 13 CDs on it all, or remasters, sorry, and then they also reissued a separate box set of all the mono remasters. And the two box sets combined add up to something like, if you pay full retail for them, it's like 500 bucks for the two of them. But then they also reissued uh, all the stereo CDs individually, which is probably what most people would buy. The mono box actually sold out real quickly. That was almost $300 for the mono box. And they only made 10,000 copies. So that sold out really quickly. But they're going to apparently do another printing of that. Now, my understanding, I don't know much about this, but my understanding is the Beatles were intimately involved with the original monos, but but uh, the stereos were done by other people, or they didn't necessarily have a, a direct hand in a lot of that. Yeah, up until 1967, the year the Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour came out, um, almost all records released in mono. And uh, I don't know if you remember, I, I'm old enough to remember going to Tower Records, and they would actually have, side-by-side side in the racks, they'd have the mono, Albums which were dollar ninety nine, and they had the stereo albums which were two ninety nine. Of course, it didn't cost them any more to pr- produce them in stereo, but they uh, <laughs> they charged an extra extra buck for them anyway, and they sounded a lot better. But most of the original recordings, as you said, were were done strictly in mono because that's what the market was for. Music was all played on AM radio, um, which didn't have the same sound quality 
the uh, the mono stuff came out, you know, AM radio was all in mono, so that's what right. people heard. And so that's what the Beatles were recording for, you know, Top 40 radio and for home systems, which most people were listening on, transistor radios or little uh, little stereo, you know, little record players that the, the, the lid would pop up and right. there'd be one speaker in the lid and things like that. So um, stereo was very much sort of an audiophile thing, and FM radio was very much an audiophile thing. It was for classical music and pretty much... Uh, you know, I read recently that the Beatles actually, when they were mixing their records, they the studio monitor at Abbey Road Studios, which is one of the you know one of the big studios in the world and still is, was a single mono speaker. So they didn't even have the opportunity to mix things in stereo as they were making the records. Uh, what happened was that the engineer George, Jeff Emmerich, who was George Martin's right hand man, the producer George Martin's right hand man, went back and redid the mixes in stereo, sort of as an aftermarket thing, sort of for the, the stereo, you know, audiophile market. And they did weird things, too. Some of those, I don't remember if you, if you don't, I don't know if you remember, but they had um, the original issues in stereo of the Beatles' early albums. So it's something like, uh, I can't remember what the phrase was, but it was, it was like this, this stereophonic uh, enhanced sound that they basically took a, a mono track and they went back and they added some echo on the other side right. and and made it sound like it was coming out of the two speakers and tried to create it, but it actually created a lot of noise and people hated them. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's that's how primitive things were when the Beatles were recording. I mean, even uh, Sgt. Pepper, of course, was, which, you know, we now take as sort of one of the landmarks in recording, was a four-track recording, which you can get on an iPhone at this point. Well, I guess John Lennon said that if you hadn't heard the mono version of Sgt. Pepper's, you'd never really heard Sgt. Pepper's. I had a strange experience growing up uh, listening to Sgt. Pepper because I bought, by accident, bought the stereo version when it came out and took it home, and we only had a monaural player. Huh. So um, I remember listening to it and hearing these vocals. The lead vocal would be way off in the distance, and I could never figure out why it was, and it was because, well, that was coming out of the other speaker that I didn't have. <laughs> and so... Um, but they did record things, and, and uh, I haven't heard these, these most recent monaural remixes. I do have some bootleg remixes uh, of, of mono, or, you know, not remixes, but they just, somebody just took an old uh, mono recording and put it on a, and recorded it and put it on a DVD or a CD. So I have heard them. Um, they're different. They're a little punchier, but, you know, once you've heard stereo, it's a little bit hard to go back and hear things in mono. Uh, to my ears, you know, you get yeah. used to that separation, you get used to the breadth of the sound, and uh, even though some of the stereo mixes of the Beatles are kind of strange, because you get the drums coming out of sort of, you know, 11 o'clock, and the vocals coming out of sort of 1 o'clock in your head, you know, you think about it as a clock, um, they come out of different, different strange angles. I would still say Stereo to me is still preferable. I think I think for most people going back and listening to mono and hearing, particularly since people listen on headphones now too. If you listen to mono on your headphones, it's all just right in the middle of your head, huh. and it's and, and it's you know I, I could see for coming out of a coming out of speakers somewhere or, or blasting it maybe it might uh, it might sound I don't know that's to me that's sort of a uh, it's almost an anti audiophile sort of attitude about the thing. But, you know, back in the early 70s, there was this whole thing sort of called back-to-mono movement that people thought mono was more pure, and I, 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 don't, I, don't, uh, I don't buy it. But then again, I haven't really heard the, these remixes, so uh, it would be interesting to hear them. You haven't had a chance to really listen to much of the catalog, but uh, I'm sure you're planning to do so. 
I am, but uh, you know they're charging top dollar for that <laughs> stuff, and I've already bought the uh, I've already bought the original albums, and then I bought my second sets when I uh, wore those out, and then I went back and I had some of them on cassette, and then uh, I bought some of I bought all of them on DVD or on CD when they came out, you know, 20 years ago, and I've bought bootlegs, and uh, right now I've been <laughs> spend my money a little a little worn out. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, is I've heard I've heard those songs for 40 years, so even if they sound remarkably better, which some people say they do, and I've read other things where other people say, yeah, you know, it sounds better, but most of the time people are listening through computer speakers, or they're listening through earbuds, or they're listening through something that doesn't have a great deal of fidelity anyway. And so a lot of people, the way people listen to music now, if you, if you immediately rip it into iTunes and then listen to it on your iPod, you're listening to an MP3, you're not listening to, and that's all compressed, so you're not really listening to... Uh, something that sounds remarkably different. You know, if you have a very expensive stereo system uh, and a lot of time, that's a different thing. I mean, I'm not saying they're not worthwhile, and you know, I'd love to, I'd love to have a big pile of them in my lap right now, but uh, but they're not cheap. Actually, the Beatles right now, I, I understand, are like the best-selling group in the country, or close to it, which is which is amazing. Yeah, I, I did some research on it when it first came out, and uh, the um, the Beatles are. The only artist that sold more albums in this decade, in the 2000s, than the Beatles is Eminem, and he's only about three million album. He was at, when this these came out, he was only about three million albums ahead of them. With these sales, I'm sure by the end of the Christmas season, with all this Beatles stuff, the Beatles will probably be at the end of 2009 the best-selling artist of this first decade of the 21st century, which is just amazing when you think about it. I'm, I'm stunned and, and in a way enormously pleased because you know, I, some of what I've heard lately, well, it, it just, it just, it's just not the same. I, I guess it's my personal bias in my age, but. Well, it's, yeah, it's a, but I, you know, it's honestly, it's not really an age thing. I know a lot of, I know a lot of younger people who are just, uh, I, I work with people, a lot of people who are half my age and uh, a lot of them are still huge, uh, they're are not still, they're huge Beatles fans, and they're in their early 20s, and they, they heard the Beatles, and they and they get it. I mean, the, and that's the bottom line for me on a lot of the stuff with the Beatles and the remasters and all that, is that the music is so great. It sounded great in mono. So going back and being able to hear this, the new remasters and, and hearing, you know, little details here and there is really, is really fun, and it's interesting, and if, you, and if you're a Beatles geek like I am, um, it can be quite thrilling to hear little differences in the sound. But the bottom line is that it was great songs and great music, and it sounded great coming out of a tiny little speaker in 1965, and it still does. Have you had a to see that, that Beatles anthology on DVD? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I own. I, I was watching the other day, and it was just it was just it was just so entertaining seeing these stories of like the Beatles getting roughed up in the Philippines, and then Paul McCartney would come out with a guitar, do Eleanor Rigby, and it's like it's just him and the guitar, and it's it sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah, they were the the, the and that's what a lot of people have complained about these remasters is that they didn't really add anything to them. It's all the same stuff that everybody's heard before. Um, when they did the anthology, which is now almost 15 years ago, and that was 1995. And they reissued, they released three, uh, six CDs, three two-CD sets of uh, music to go along with the DVDs. And that music on there was a lot of stuff that was um, different uh, works in progress, early versions of songs, alternative versions of songs, different uh, vocals. There was one 
um, recording of uh, the Beatles doing And Your Bird Can Sing, and they had obviously just gone out of the studio onto the roof and had a little smoke of something and come <laughs> back in, and they had the giggles, and they're trying to do the backing vocals for this track, and they just collapse in laughter and giggles, and, and things like that are, very, are really fun to hear, but, you know, this new collection of stuff doesn't, uh, doesn't include anything like that. So, you know, the bottom line with the Beatles is that basically we've heard it all. We've heard it all. There's very little that's going to ever come out now. I mean, they released most of what they recorded. They were working at a clip where they were releasing two albums a year sometime and yeah. a, couple of, a couple of singles besides that. So they released almost everything they recorded. So there's not going to be a whole lot of new stuff coming out. One thing I will say um, for anybody who has not heard it, which is probably not very many people because it's a... Uh, it sold two million copies, but um, when the Cirque du Soleil show Love was put together in Las Vegas, yeah, um, all around the Beatles music, George Martin and his son Giles Martin went into the studio and remixed and completely reimagined a lot of this Beatles music and, and combined different tracks with each other and did a really spectacularly creative job and remastered it. So that stuff you hear it and you're and, and it's really it's it's really thrilling. It's really different. It's really exciting, and that really reinvented a lot of the Beatles music, but very respectfully in a way that anybody who loved the Beatles would, would get and enjoy, but find to be new and exciting. This new stuff is not going to feel that way to most people, but I would really recommend, if anybody hasn't heard that song, that's an album called Love, um, it's the Beatles' Love, it's really spectacular. Well, that, of course, is going to be our musical segue as we leave you. <laughs> so, David, before you go, I know you've got a blog and some updates and stuff, and uh, why don't you share those with our listeners? Well, it's actually not a blog. It's an online newspaper that I'm the managing editor of, of right now. It's called Sacramento Press. And uh, we're actually holding, in the month of October, we're having our, our first Sacramento Press journalism open. So uh, for, journalists, uh, for journalists and aspiring journalists to come write, the site. Uh, it's a citizen journalism effort, and it's a whole new uh, creative way of doing journalism. It's at uh, sacramentopress.com. Well, I, I'm sure many of our uh, our listeners and many of our DJs associated with this station are going to want to go there because uh, they're turning out music shows, uh, you know, 24/7, and I'm sure there'll be a lot uh, a lot of value for them as well. Yeah, great, David. Thank you so much for your insights, and I hope that we'll have you back on sometime soon. All right, thanks. All righty. That was music correspondent David Watts Barton. There ain't nobody better with musical guests, although it pains me to say that somewhat, but a man should know his limitations. All right, let's go from arts and entertainment into science and politics. We often find ourselves in that to interface between science and politics. And frankly, sometimes that's kind of a grim area to be operating in, but... Uh, on a lighter-hearted note, we have the following from Tony Sterling of the AP, repeated in the Sacramento Bee a few days ago, article titled, bit of a follow-up on a story we talked about um, a few weeks ago, uh, about the fact that the Netherlands National Museum moon rock turned out to, in fact, be a piece of petrified wood. Well, apparently that's just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, the article, Dateline Amsterdam, opens with, Attention, countries of the world! Do you know where your moon rocks are? Adding the discovery of a fake moon rock in the Netherlands National Museum should be a wake-up call for more than 130 countries that received gifts of lunar rubble 
from both the Apollo 11 space flight in 1969 and the Apollo 17 flight three years later. Nearly 270 rocks scooped up by the U.S. astronauts were given to foreign countries by the Nixon administration. But according to experts in the research by the AP, the whereabouts of some of these small rocks are unknown. Apparently, uh, Joseph Gunthides, a University of Arizona instructor and former U.S. government investigator, has made it a hobby to track down the lunar treasures given as gifts and said, there's no doubt in my mind that many moon rocks are lost or stolen and are now sitting in private collections. In fact, of 135 rocks from the Apollo 17 missions given away to various nations or their leaders, only 25 have been located. The AP got involved and started looking at some declassified correspondence between the State Department and these various nations, which yielded a meager 30 leads. <laughs> Rather alarmingly, Ecuador and Cyprus were among several nations that said they'd never heard of the rocks. Five were handed to African dictators, long since dead or deposed. And when they tried to track down the 134 Apollo 11 moon rocks, eh, apparently it was even bleaker. The locations of fewer than a dozen are known. Now we should note that since the last time we were at the moon was Apollo 17 in 1972, uh, moon rocks have increased in value since then. In fact, their value has skyrocketed. NASA maintains the collection of most of the 382 kilograms of uh, moon rocks gathered by the, uh, the Apollo astronauts, and these gifts they gave out typically weighed about the size of a rice grain. To date, there's been only one legal sale of moon samples. That was in 1993, and the lunar soil there weighed 0.2 grams and came from an unmanned Russian probe, which was sent to the moon to scoop up some soil and come back to Earth. That uh, 0.2 grams auctioned for $442,000. Of course, as impressive as that is, uh, if my math is correct, if NASA sold all of its moon rocks off at that rate, we'd still earn less than a billion dollars. Which, after all, which, which I have to admit is, is not bad for a, a rock collection. And speaking of lunar soil, don't you love these segues? We mentioned uh, last week or the week before that uh, satellite data from lunar orbiters is indicating that there appears to be the signature of water in the drier parts of the moon, parts previously thought to be bone dry. Now, we're not talking about a lot of moisture here, probably about what you'd find in, you know, the desert soil of Arizona in the summer. But, you know, there's some water there. And some water is a lot better than no water. And they've been pretty sure for some time that there are probably some significant quantities of water to be found at the poles of the moon, which means that if we ever go back to try and colonize our, uh, our neighbor, we will have more resources to work with. If you've been a listener to this program, you know, of course, that we should bypass the moon and go straight for Mars, which we know has plenty of water, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll lay off that discussion today. And note instead that satellite data based here on Earth shows that uh, our, our polar ice sheets are melting faster than anyone has expected. In fact, uh, some places are being described as being in runaway melt mode. Noted in a recent article in the AP, these new measurements based on 50 million laser readings from a NASA satellite confirm what some of the more pessimistic scientists thought. The melting along the crucial edges of the two major ice sheets is accelerating and is in a self-feeding loop. 
Well, it looks as though Al Gore was right in an inconvenient truth. I did have a chance to speak to uh, Dr. Richard Muller on Capital Public Radio's Insight earlier this week. Muller has some uh, blue-trip credentials as an atmospheric scientist and who's measured uh, world temperatures over the millennia. And a good scientist that he is, he's, he says that he thinks there's a 90% chance that uh, <laughs> global warming is caused by man's activities. Or being more circumspect, he would say that he thinks it's probably contributing to global warming. We admire his objectivity and uh, unwillingness to be inflammatory in statements made about uh, climate change, but we suspect he's being a little optimistic. You'll be able to judge for yourself because we will, we, will, we will air that interview in its entirety either uh, next week or the week after on this program. I must notice one of the great pleasures of having a radio program that you can hear someone on the air. In this case, it was... Uh, Bill Wattenberg's program on KGO, I heard Dr. Muller, and thought uh, this would be a good guest to get here for Radio Parallax. As it turned out, the opportunity arose to have him reach a wider audience on CAP Radio, and, uh, well, I admit it, I took it. We uh, thought he was a smart guy whose opinions uh, should be heard, even if we don't necessarily agree with them 100%. And, um, and don't worry, we'll, we'll bring him on to this show soon.